Welcome back to Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. This week, we're joined by Robert Lawrence, our L. Williams Professor of International Trade and Investment at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm sitting down with Professor Lawrence after his appearance at HKS on April 8th. It is great to have you here, Professor Lawrence. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Professor Lawrence, could you tell us a little bit more about the new book that you're working on about the phenomenon of diminishing manufacturing curves across the globe? Yes, actually, I, I started working on America, on the United States. I became very aware that the loss of manufacturing jobs had had very significant economic and political consequences. And what I began to appreciate as I worked on it was that this phenomenon, which Americans, I guess, in a self-centered way, thought was particular to the United States, and which they uh, ascribe to particular American policies was actually much more broadly shared. All developed countries have experienced this trend in declining manufacturing over time. It's prevalent both in uh, countries like Germany and Ireland with very large trade surpluses. And so the more I became aware of the universality of this phenomenon. And as I say, I had started with developed countries. The more I started to appreciate that the discussions that we're having about the decline in the share of manufacturing don't seem to be taking account of the fact that it is so prevalent around the world. And so my research uh, then expanded to look also at what's been happening in developing countries. I was very influenced by my colleague, Danny Roderick, who had done this work on premature deindustrialization in developing countries. I read a lot of work and the literature on structural change, and I felt that it was necessary to bring home to people that this is a phenomenon that characterizes our era. It's widely shared. And while individual countries have their unique attributes, there's a lot in common. And so I decided to develop in the first part of my book, a very simple model to show how you could capture what countries have in common. And later, I also did more work on the historic role that manufacturing had played in inducing in both inclusion and growth especially in the United States, and the way its traditional role has now diminished. Through your research, has, have you found any outliers to this phenomenon, or has this been the case historically and in the present across developed and developing countries? If there are any outliers, is there any specific reason that's driving the difference? Well, I, I do find, uh, of course, uh, countries are different. And in fact, um, in my statistical work, I try to capture the unique features of each country with, a, with a, what, what we call a dummy variable that will capture their unique features. So not all countries <laughs> are alike. Uh, for instance, I find manufacturing employment in a, in a place like Taiwan has been uh, pretty more robust. I find that China had a very high share of manufacturing employment. It's now declining. So I do find uh, 
uh, of course, over time, uh, countries have, have uh, their differences. But to be honest, I've yet to find a, developing a developed country that has not passed its peak and that is not experiencing this declining trend. Interestingly, in the last decade in the United States, the share of manufacturing employment has actually been fairly stable. And the trend decline hasn't been as rapid as it was before. And when I looked into this question, what I found was that productivity growth in American manufacturing has declined during this period. So I wrote a, a paper, which you can go to the Peterson website and see, where I call, which was devoted to recent US manufacturing employment experience. And I called it the exception that proves the rule. In a sense, it kind of showed that the, 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 the explanations which emphasized the role of rapid productivity growth earlier in causing the manufacturing share to diminish now held when you looked at why the manufacturing share hadn't diminished as much in the face of lower productivity growth in the US in manufacturing. So looking forward, we see the trend that has happened already, but with the rise of populism, with the pandemic, disruption to supply chains and global risks and political unrest we've seen in Eastern Europe these days, how has the slowing of globalization in recent years affected this phenomenon? And if so, what in what ways? Well, paradoxically, the initial effect of COVID, of course, was to lead people to go out and buy a lot of goods and buy fewer service, spend much less on services. So we actually have seen an uptick in the demand for goods. In the short run, <laughs> that might've created more employment opportunities in, in manufacturing. But at the same time, of course, goods are highly traded. And the disruptions that you have described have now especially had an adverse effect on goods trade. So another complex story where uh, we still see tourism and other service-related activities have yet to fully recover, but we're also now seeing disruption in goods markets as a result of the shocks which you have described. And so raw materials uh, like nickel, and others used for batteries, lithium, and food prices because of the shocks uh, that have occurred have been uh, hugely disruptive uh, for commodity markets. And in turn, in general, trade initially experienced very negative shocks as a consequence of COVID. More recently, though, we've seen a pickup in international trade. And so, I think uh, if we get economic recoveries around the world, uh, we could see a restoration of trade, although no back, not back to its previous kind of levels. We're seeing lots of disruption of global trade, and we had already seen a decline in the share of trade in, uh, in, in the growth rates of trade in GDP. So I would say we still don't know the bottom line on the, on the, to answer your question fully, uh, certainly 
we're living through a very unusual period in which uh, we can't just extrapolate previous trends. Looking more specifically at your experience in advising the South African economy and your general background uh, with its economy, how do you think that this premature deindustrialization has affected South Africa specifically? And what has South Africa done to address the issue or what do you in your mind think that they should do in the future? Well, I would say South Africa has experienced a major decline in uh, manufacturing employment. I think a very important driver in the last decade has been the stagnation of investment in South Africa. Investment is very important because basically it requires equipment and construction. And these are two uh, contributors uh, to job creation. And South Africa, partly because of state corruption, partly because of policies uh, which have not invested sufficiently in skills, and I would say partly because um, many in South Africa, um, uh, uh, particularly those with money, I, that is to say the white South Africans don't see much of a future in South Africa. All of these, in my judgment, have contributed to a decline in investment rates. And that above all has meant uh, fewer opportunities for manufactured goods. I also think that South Africa uh, has, uh, you know, its unemployment rate is 35%, and it has not taken advantage of uh, workers who are basically not earning any money uh, to create opportunities for them to get into more labor intensive exporting. Uh, the South Africans have not built export processing zones that are effective in the same way as many Asian countries did. And so I think it's, it's necessary for South Africa to change its policies. I also think that uh, South Africans protect using tariffs on uh, inputs into manufacturing, and that can make it expensive for those who want to export manufactured goods from South Africa. So there are a variety of uh, policy measures I think the South Africans could take, but first and foremost, as I think their own government recognizes, there's a need to stimulate investment. Going from your research that I've seen the model where productivity increases actually at some points uh, decreases manufacturing job growth. What, if not manufacturing, what is the next easiest or most effective way for developing countries to grow? What policies could increase productivity, potentially in other sectors, without losing out on social mobility and uh, economic inclusion? Well, I think developing countries have to be opportunistic and uh, exploit their advantages. One very important sector, for instance, actually just to return to South Africa is tourism. Tourism is very labor intensive. It's a service, um, but it requires the right kind of policies uh, to promote uh, the country abroad. It requires the right kind of uh, training for those who uh, provide the services. It requires security when it comes to uh, keeping people safe uh, when they're enjoying wonderful scenery or wonderful wildlife. 
So that's just one, one example. I think generally there's a lot of scope for trade. There continues to be in goods and in services. And I think the possibility of supplying services remotely using the internet uh, is something that developing countries need to be enhancing. I think e-commerce provides new opportunities to provide a, a variety of services by developing countries. I think it's a question that's um, difficult to answer in the abstract. And it's rather too general to say, well, you need to emphasize manufacturing. I think e e countries are different in this respect. And they, a lot depends on their unique, their unique attributes, on their geographic location, on their resource endowments, on their skills, on their history. Uh, all of those things have to be brought to bear to answer your question. I agree, and that's, I think, the, one of the biggest challenges you've mentioned in your previous presentations, that uh, shifting productivity uh, growth away from manufacturing into the service sector is certainly a very hard thing to do and requires a lot of education of the masses. So if we look at the changes in China, which has hit its hump, per se, uh, more recently, is there any trends recently uh, in recent years showing that China has been progressing into productivity growth in the service sector? Well, China always had a pretty rapid productivity growth in services, actually, if you look at the Chinese data. But I found working on China very interesting. Firstly, uh, in the United States, as the manufacturing shares in employment diminished, what you found was fewer and fewer opportunities for men who didn't have a high school education to get jobs. What you're seeing in China is that as China's share of employment diminishes, particularly as the supply chains that produce labor-intensive products like clothing and electronics leave China, that has had an adverse impact on the employment of women who came from rural areas and for whom a manufacturing job was a way out of poverty. So while the decline in manufacturing has led to less inclusive growth in the US because of its impact on men, I think in China, it's the impact on women that's led to less inclusion. Now, looking forward, what I notice is that while on the one hand, President Xi is talking about the importance of shared growth because of growing income inequality within China. China's industrial policies, which are designed to develop China's prowess in high-tech products, in my view, is likely to have the opposite effect. It's likely to increase the demand for Chinese who have uh, highly high skills and college educations. So if ever there was a need to help those who are poorer, the policy thrust of China, which is emphasizing the development of technologies in, for instance, its programs like Made in China 2025, they may do something for China's technological capabilities but they're also likely to lead to more skill-biased technical change. 
finally, last but not least, in light of the uh, upcoming IMF World Bank Group uh, Spring 2022 meetings in DC, what are the things that the international community, uh, international non-governmental organizations, uh, what policy can they implement to help developing countries uh, go past the hump per se and produce uh, increased growth and productivity beyond the manufacturing sector? Well, at the moment, we have a dire situation in the area of food, which is, you know, the beginning um, for all developing countries is essential. The war in the Ukraine has severely disrupted international food markets for, for wheat, uh, for fertilizer, and for oil and energy resources. So in addition to the impact of the COVID recession, developing countries are going to go through an especially difficult time for those who are not commodity exporters. Imports of commodities are going to become much more difficult uh, for developing countries. And I think there is an increasing need for aid uh, to assist them uh, through what it looks like a very troubling uh, period of time. Uh, over the medium and long term, I think ultimately the impact of the digital economy is going to further increase the demand for skills of various kinds. And so the long-term investments in giving people, not simply getting people into schools, but giving people the skills they need to be productive uh, workers and indeed uh, employers is really essential for sustained development. Thank you so much for these thoughtful answers. You can find more information about Professor Lawrence's work at the Harvard Kennedy School at hks.harvard.edu slash research.insights. Thanks again to Professor Lawrence for taking the time to talk with us today. To learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research, events, and upcoming events at cidharvard.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon.